0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books and Islamic Studies podcast, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobana Xavier, and thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you are safe and well wherever you are. In today's episode, we are joined by Seema Golestane, an assistant professor of Near Eastern Studies at Cornell University to talk about her new book, Unknowing and the Everyday, Sufism and Knowledge in Iran, which is published by Duke University Press in 2023. Drawing from thoughtful and compelling ethnographic study of contemporary Sufism in Iran, Golestane guides her readers through processes and praxis of mystical experience and knowledge acquisition among Sufi communities in Iran. The book focuses on the central conceptual paradigm of marifat, which Golastana has incisively translated as unknowing. From a Sufi perspective, this complicated concept renders any knowledge of the divine, or any knowledge for that matter, as ultimately limited. And it is from this unknowable state that one makes the effort to know the divine, particularly through intellectual striving, such as in relation to hermeneutical interpretations of the Quran, literary or poetic traditions, or through practice, such as through zikr, a process that aims to achieve non-subjectivity. This beautifully written monograph centers the voices of Golastani's interlocutors to engage these complex Sufi states of being and knowing through accessible narratives of their everyday life. It is a must read for scholars interested in Sufism and mysticism or anyone with interest in Iran in general. In our conversation today, Golestane and I spoke about her methodological processes, the challenges of completing fieldwork in Iran, the history of Sufism and mysticism in Iran, as well as conceptual ideas central to Sufism and this book of mystical knowledge and ritual practices of zikr, sama, and notions of memories, place, and space, and some of the uh, Sufi communities she engaged with in the book. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Seema Golestane about her new book, Unknowing and the Everyday Sufism and Knowledge in Iran. Hi, Seema. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
0: I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I am just so excited to talk to you about your new book, Unknowing and the Everyday Sufism and Knowledge in Iran. Um, I just finished reading it and I just um, it's just amazing that I have the honor of just kind of chatting with you and processing the book with you. So and obviously I'm interested in Sufism. Oh personal interest but I think the book is just beautifully written and there's so many wonderful dimensions and I think it's going to be great for a lot of scholars who work on this field so congratulations to you and thank you for being here oh my goodness
0: that's so kind of you thank you so much yeah it's been a many many years of work so uh, I really appreciate you know writing in a little bit of a black hole so yeah. <laughs> it's exciting to have it in the world thank you for your <laughs> kind words yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I would love to know a little bit about,
1: you know, your journey and who you are and what led you to writing this book, like a particularly academic journey and specifically interest in Sufism and Iran and you're an anthropologist. So, yeah, I would love to know some of that backstory.
0: Sure. Yeah. So I came to um Sufism in particular, or even, you know, anthropology of religion, Islam in a kind of roundabout way. I My undergrad was in comparative literature. Um, and so I was sitting, um, I was doing some aesthetic theory, a lot of ideas about listening, um, and poetry, but I was kind of interested more and more about not just the ideas themselves, but their sort of place in the world more broadly, the impact they were having. Um, and I had taken some anthropology courses as an undergrad. Um, and so initially, uh, when I started my PhD project, I was going to work with musicians, Um, And I was interested in, you know, people whose lives are devoted to um, producing certain sounds, especially uh, improvisatory sounds. Um, And then I started doing research uh, in Iran and found out that a lot of these musicians are also Sufis. Um, And I started just learning more about it and how some of their, their musical practices were informed by... Um, you know, Sufi epistemologies. And I started reading more into it and I saw that there wasn't a lot done. Um, But I really had very little background in Islamic studies at all. At that point, I had just, you know, read some of the, you know, Rumi poetry and things like that, mostly in English, even at that point. Um, And my knowledge of, again, Islamic studies was pretty much, you know, taking Sunday school classes at the (laughs) At the local mosque and uh, going, to, you know, you know, throwing little messages in a well with my grandmother in Isfahan. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and so I remember I had this moment. I was like, OK, am I going to really go and do uh, anthropology of religion? And uh, I made this choice and I did it and I've been really happy ever since. And so that led me down to the Sufi path. And I'm still very much interested in aesthetic theories and how it's applied. Um and I do get into that a bit with the book, particularly with listening practices. So that was my kind of roundabout way of finding my path to to Sufism studies. That makes
1: complete sense as now I'm thinking about the book because I think sound studies Mm -hmm. and landscapes inform so much of the analysis that you do. But I think it's also Mm -hmm. beautifully woven in and complements the ways you approach Sufism. And I would not have known reading the book now and hearing you talk that you had no background in all of this because you're kind of just, it seems like you are coming at it from like a Sufi studies and anthropology of religion. All of it is just works so well together and it's just fabulous for that reason. Um, I would love to know a little bit about your methodological process especially Mm -hmm. as an anthropologist doing ethnography in Iran I think there were moments in the book where some of your particular locations and identities are really kind of coming up in terms of your family connections or your gender identities um, and perhaps like how it influenced your capacity to be mobile or not and accessing different individuals I -hmm. imagine there was a lot of challenges and I'm sure there's probably like a lot of stories that were not Um, So I wonder if you you could share some of that with us in terms of like what the challenges were, maybe what were some positive or like good surprises in the field as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so there were definitely challenges and it probably comes across most strongly, I think, in um, how much I really tried to anonymize my subjects, my Mm -hmm. interlocutors. Um, I don't use any forget even just the names but the names of the orders the cities are not there in a lot of the places specific dates um, so it was something I had to uh, and there was also a lot of information I couldn't get access to um, and didn't even kind of try to get access to because I didn't want to draw attention to myself certain archival materials um, you know I would have to go through certain channels and I didn't want to draw uh, attention to myself or my Uh, interlocutors in that way. And the situation kind of changed a bit. And a lot of this is just erring on the side of caution. Um, There was a chance I could have gone through and um, uh, had names and everything else, and it probably would have been fine, but I'm very cautious. And so I didn't want to um, bring attention to my interlocutors. Um, So it is definitely, and there could have been Other arguments I could have made if I had, you know, interviews with sort of more more state officials, certainly a lot more, um, you know, historical work, archival work, histories of the particular orders. And so I tried to see it, it was frustrating at times, um, but I also tried to see it as an opportunity to say, okay, I'm really going to focus on this ethnographic material, interviews, um, you know the old school participant observations of spending a lot of time with people going to events meetings um a lot of the textual material so in certain ways um you know stefania pandolfo has written about being a miniaturist you know you take a small case study and you try to unravel it in this way um so i thought you know well yes i don't have access to everything But I still think there's things that can be said. Mm -hmm. Um, So rather than sort of being a purist about it, uh, I said, okay, um, I'm gonna focus on what I have. Um, And yeah, there's a certain, and I think historians sometimes could get frustrated with the book because they're like, well, can you say more about this order, more about this? You know, who, what is this or that? And I totally get it. Um, But I just, the priority is, you know, keeping interlocutors safe. Um, And so that's why, know there's this level of sort of intentional obfuscation in the book um in terms of uh, things that were surprising i really had um very few avenues that were close to me as a woman if anything there were more avenues open to me um even single women in Iran travel relatively easily um i think you know a lot of uh, most people thought i was a student even if i was going to sort of smaller towns cities. um they would see that a lot of people will now go leave home their hometowns to study in colleges basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not unusual at all to see even again, forget the big cities where everybody is, you know, there's plenty of mobility. Um, but I didn't have any trouble and, uh, all the orders, all the groups I work with were mixed gender. Um, and, uh, in some cases, very mixed, even in you know, the meetings and one of the case studies, the group meets in a large mixed gender segregated uh, one room, essentially, and others, you know, the the men and women are separate. Um, but uh, so that was actually, you know, there's always considerations, safety, things like that. But uh, it was surprisingly very, um, I think, well, some people will be surprised, I think that that wasn't really a hindrance for me at all. Um, so, Yeah. You've just, I mean, I think
1: one of the great contributions of the book is just you captured such a rich kind of diversity of different expressions of Sufism in, in Iran across mm-hmm. like institutionalized and non-institutionalized Sufism, individual relationships, conversations with Sufi teachers. And I think for anyone who's kind of just looking for that kind of, you know, even description or, you know, um, analysis, like it's just wonderful to read through the book because it's so accessible to be able to see, well, what is Sufism in the contemporary context? as I think a lot of people, don't make those connections, you know, with Iran and mm. kind of placement of Sufism, which you get into in chapter one. Um, before we kind of get into maybe some of the details or um, pillars of the book, what would you say are maybe some of the bigger um interventions or uh, work your arguments your the book is trying to make?
0: yeah. so one is on a very basic level, uh, something I found really surprising or um with my research was that, I didn't go into Sufism and sort of the lived experiences. I didn't know its role in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found that people, the word they used a lot was amal, had application mm-hmm. uh, for their everyday lives. It was not just a sort of escapist paradigm um, but something they could use to navigate the trials and tribulations. So in that way, I think Sufism is not just, um, a literary exercise or a, again, some sort of transcendental phenomenon, um, but something that is actually deeply embedded in the sort of socio-material world, um, so that's something I think uh, I'd like to emphasize. And then, one on the second point, the sort of just the deep complexity with a lot of the ideas that these folks are dealing with, and a lot of these people are, for the vast majority, are lay people. Um, some of them have formal training. A lot of them have college degrees, and some of the, but a lot of them engineers. Of course, this is you know this is Iran. <laughs> Uh, we produce a lot of engineers um, so formal training but not formal training within say a, what what might be called the traditional kind of Sufi training uh, which happens at least in my research pretty rarely these days and uh, the old school being you go you study at the feet of the master you live at the lodge etc um, so that doesn't really happen but despite this I think the people, how they're thinking through a lot of pretty abstruse ideas um, is really impressive. Uh, And just the sort of thought they, um, even in the midst of sort of busy lives, uh, you know, devote to this, uh, these kinds of ideas was really, um, I thought, so remarkable. Uh, And lastly, as you mentioned, sort of in the first chapter, I also wanted to kind of argue for the, really sort of diffused nature of Sufism or particularly categories of erfan, esoteric thought uh, within, you know, the Iranian intellectual uh, sphere. Um, Particularly, I looked at more, um, you know, within sort of religious intellectual sphere. Um, So it's not the sort of heterodox, orthodox thing that's often posited, Um, uh, but it emerges in kind of surprising ways and the difficulty in actually deciding if something is sufi or not sufi or some other kind of iteration of you know esoteric or mystical if you will Mm -hmm. yeah and i like completely agree because
1: when i was reading the book and there were um like You have chunks of quotes, or you have these moments of interactions with your interlocutors who are describing these huge conceptual ideas in Sufism, and they kind of just say it in this very like clear way, and you're like, oh, I've never thought about it that way, right? And I just is like so profoundly moved by that. And I think one of the things I loved about the book is precisely the way that you've translated some of these huge conceptual ideas, like the um, I think in the introduction you talk about ma'rifat as being an unknowing as opposed to actually. Mm -hmm. Like, which traditionally is translated, I think, as like gnosis or mystical knowledge or something right, like right. that. And zikr as something um, of non subjectivity or like trying to achieve non subjectivity as opposed to like this practice of remembrance. And so, I, I wonder if you could walk us through some of the ways in which you came to some of these just like translations, which it seems like you did it so casually, but there's just so insight. Oh, God, that was so, so sharp. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah.
0: You no, know, so these, uh, you're touching upon something that was really, um uh, that was really a challenge in writing it. And I say this to students too, again, a lot of these ideas are pretty abstruse and to write it about them in like an academic way yeah. and not sound totally bananas is, <laughs> was really hard. So it took me a lot of writing, rewriting to, you know, when you're talking about the secret of the secret of the inner heart um and you're like secret of you know taking notes to yourself <laughs> like okay I need to write this in a way that uh someone who is not totally versed with sufism can uh approach it um and I think that also kind of led to um some of these questions of of translation mm-hmm. uh that you mentioned so uh, uh matter of fact uh, which as you noted it is totally often translated as mystical knowledge or gnosis and this i tried to i got frustrated with very early on actually in writing when i was writing up in english um because it just is such like a nothing burger as <laughs> something my middle school teacher would say mm-hmm. uh and like yeah so the myst- like what does that mean exactly uh no- and gnosis also Um, when it is more specific it's actually really coming out of a christian tradition so it's kind of you know the translations i think were kind of lumped in there Um, and matter of fact is such a huge term and is debated so broadly that you know and i'm focusing on just the interpretation of matter of fact of mystical knowledge of my interlocutors so i said well maybe i can translate it in a more specific way um, rather than just again this catch-all of mystical knowledge gnosis etc um and so i found this um through their how they were thinking about this idea or even sort of their approach to you know sufism more broadly was through this idea of unknowing um which you know I, i approach it as well i'll say this first it was often i think based on their insistence on the unknowability of god the mm-hmm. unknowability of the divine, that God will also know more. Not only is God unknowable, but God will always know more. Um, you know, there's a there's a line in uh, uh, Surah Yosef, it's, you know, above every possessor of knowledge, there's one more knowing, or one more all-knowing. Um, and so the idea there is that um, so, okay, you know, humans were set there. We're we know we're uh, aware of the limits of our knowledge. But rather than see this as an impediment, it's sort of an opportunity. Um, It's in a way to sort of position themselves at a juncture and to be hyper aware that we are always aware that we know nothing. You know, operating with an awareness that our knowledge is finite, um, but because of that. Um, there's this other form of, of the sort of human knowledge is finite, but matter of fact, mystical knowledge is infinite. Mm Uh, and so there's always a movement forward. Um, and what happens then is when you're sort of hyper aware that, you know, uh, about uh, hyper aware that you are, um, of this awareness that, you know, nothing essentially is that you're able to question a lot of what's happening in the world around you. And then like, well, I think this, but it could also be that um, because my own knowledge is constrained by sort of humanity, um, my humanness, if you will. Um, And so what does it think about, what does it mean to think about knowledge instead as something that puts into question more than answers, um, is sort of an endless project, is endless generative. Um, So that's, you know, I was trying to sort of think about that as if I can get as specific as possible. And yeah, the non-subjectivity stuff that also, (laughs) and it's, um, it's difficult because I, you know, there's forms of self that they are looking to, um, develop in a way that is very hard to, because you have to get to a place where you're not in control of yourself, essentially, it's a, um, non-volitional kind of move, um, And so, you know, you can cultivate the self and that's important for them, but eventually you get to a place where, you know, your conscious mind can't bring you to this plane you want. It has to be, that's why you have all this language of surrender, of submission. And that's when, you know, the non-volitional kind of plays a part into the self. Um, So, yeah, I think you were trying to formulate these ideas, just trying to be specific as possible.
1: Yeah. I mean, huge congratulations to you of just like the way that you've laid it oh, out in so the book. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, as you're talking about it, I appreciate the difficulty of doing that. But as I was reading it, I just was receiving it in a way that, oh, like you got it. Like, you know what I mean? And so I think it just translated I so well. And I know I definitely, moving forward, will be citing it a lot in my own scholarship. So I think- Oh my goodness, thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah, the sharp translations, like I haven't stopped thinking about it. Like it just has been something that I'm like, oh wow, like I've never really, you know, you know the traditional translation process, but I'm like, oh wow, this is something else. And I think what's wonderful about the book is that the rest of the chapters are really- like trying to then showcase how this works, the the relationality of the the non-subjectivity or the unknowing process, and I think it, it does a fabulous job of giving you tangible examples of how your interlocutors were processing precisely these huge conceptual Sufi ideas that you're just like, I don't know what that means, right? Um, right. Yeah. So I wonder if it we can ground it-, it in such
0: fascinating ways.
1: Exactly. And I think the fact that folks are coming from an experiential perspective, and as you say, weren't traditionally trained in these like madrasa systems, it's like really fascinating Mm. that um, the lay folks have such ownership and agency over these kinds of important metaphysical productions, which I think in Sufism we often don't think about. We take it from such an authoritative or these classical modes. Right, yeah, and I think that's right. so fantastic about the project that you've given us is that we'll know everyday people are also really thinking through these hard things and actually have a better grasp of it. So,
0: yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And so much of it is, you know, the teachers themselves encouraging this type of critical thinking. And so much of the um, of Sufism, uh, as you mentioned, it's the hierarchies, the Pirmori, the student teacher is kind of emphasized. It's sort of uh, portrayed as a kind of parroting back um what's being said but what's happening there is the teachers are actually doing a really sophisticated pedagogical you know task about um you know pedagogical endeavor uh, about having them students question Mm -hmm. um rather than you know just uh, and grapple with these ideas rather than just learn in a sort of one-way street from them
1: Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. Can you give us a little bit of sense? And I know chapter one does this a lot, and you've mentioned it already. Like, so in the the context of Iran, I know chapter one has this interesting title of Sufism in Iran and Iran in Sufism. So I know there's kind of this like, kind of process and complicated relationship that you, you do map out historically, and we won't be able to get into all of the details of it. And there's kind of the philosophical dimensions, the Irfani dimensions and, you know, Sufism and Shiism and all of this stuff. So for perhaps some of our listeners who have no context to any of this, um, what might be like a way to think about what sphere they're entering into in terms of thinking about Sufism and knowledge in Iran?
0: So I think kind of thinking about um, Sufism in, in, in Iran, at least, uh, from sort of 1500s onwards, it's important to know that it ex- um mysticism, mysticism, in particular, um is referred to by multiple terms. um and they have very different genealogies and very different sort of purchase in contemporary Iran. And it's uh, tassavof, uh which is closest to sort of broader mysticism, Erfan, which is kind of a literary tradition, um. And then there's Sufi Gari, which is the closest to sort of organized Sufism, uh, where you think about, you know, particular orders and things like that. And, you know, from the early, I I draw from Atal Anzali has a great book, it's called Mysticism in Iran, mysticism is in quotes, um, about how these terms came to be and why we need to have these bifurcations. And it's actually, he looks to the sort of the political nature of the founding of this uh, dynasty, the Safavid dynasty, and how they were actually a Sufi order. Uh, and when they came to be uh, assumed sort of power over sort of proto-Iran, uh, there was a lot of migration by mystics outside of Iran, uh, some willing, some unwilling, uh, due to the pressure of the Safavids. And so what happened there was that it, the argument sometimes was like, oh, well, mysticism, mysticism, quote unquote, left Iran. But what Anzali and some others have noted is that actually what happened was that it starts to be referred to as other terms. This is where you have the tradition rather than call it uh, Sufi becomes Irfan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they're like, we're not those Sufis, we're these types of Sufis. Uh, And so the traditions or the sort of esoteric tradition really gets kind of subsumed um, uh, within the um, emerging sort of Shia milieu of the time. Safavids, of course, bringing Shiism uh, for the first time in large scale practice to uh, Iran at the time. And so what happens is that, you know, to summarize and put really crudely, you have this kind of diffusion of Sufi ideas that are not necessarily called Sufi um, within a lot of intellectual thought, um, literary production uh, throughout all throughout, uh, you know, Iranian history. Um, and then so a lot of this is just, just sort of political machinations. It's not even, you know, an intellectual disagreement or, you know, saying this is blasphemy, blah, blah, blah. Um, it was these kind of political origins. Um, and then you see it to another thing I'll just mention is within the 20th century. With the revival of the Jose seminaries uh, in qum and um, Esfahan was still there, you actually have a lot more cross pollination of um, you know esoteric thought uh, with folks uh, who you probably might not assume to be interested in esotericism or you know if it was called then. Um, and I go through this, and there's really key figures who are much more closely associated with political Islam, you know, kind of broadly read. Um, Of course, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, Ayatollah um, Mu'tahari, um, they all had really serious uh, interests in Sufism. Um, and so, th- especially for them, they didn't see, you know, esoteric thought as um, opposed to mystical thought, mm-hmm. um, there were ideas that of uh, they were not sort of it seems strange bedfellows. for them, there were clear um, ideas there that worked for both. Um, and a lot of another example is Alamotabatabai, um, who was a key Shia thinker in 20th century Iran. Um, known very much known as an esoteric thinker. Um, But a lot of his students, including Mutahari, were very much part of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's kind of inner circle. Um, So you have these folks who are very much into political Islam, Islam and, you know, uh, tied to governance, uh, things that we don't necessarily associate with mysticism, uh, but being there as well. Um, And so you have, again, and there's a new book, uh, there's a new uh, dissertation by um, Sayyid Amir Asghari, and he does a really interesting job looking much more closely, specifically at the seminaries and how key figures there had ties to formal Sufi orders. Mm -hmm. Um, So Sufism has really infiltrated uh, a lot of different elements of, of, um, you know, Iranian politics, 20th century and even earlier, and of course, intellectual uh, kind of discourses too. Mm yeah and I think the
1: rest of the, the the chapters in the book are really then kind of unpacking certain dimensions of kind of these uh, ways, expressions, or praxis of Sufism in the contemporary context as well, after having outlined these kind of discussions in chapter one. Um, and we'll see, we may not be able to get to all of them, but we could start picking up on some of them. Um, chapter two is really fascinating for me. I mean, I think one of the things you introduced in this chapter is like the dream hermeneutics. And I was like so compelled oh, yeah. by this. <laughs> Um, but I think um, and yeah, maybe you'll be able to describe this chapter more, but you're kind of kind of capturing how some of your the teachers, I think this is one of the few chapters where you have a presence of the shakes like the teachers who are mm-hmm. whose voice are more dominant and then you are also complemented with some of the voices of the students, um, where you're talking about how um, there's like the hermeneutic of approaching the text that they're dealing with, or like you know, and one of the ways in which one of they are being taught to do that is also to show up in terms of like dream hermeneutics, right? And I still mm-hmm. have the image of you, um, and I forgot the name of the teacher, um, where I think. Oh shit, Alice. Yeah, Yeah, it was Ali Zadeh who said that, you know, you were trying to, he was telling you that, you know, when the time is right, you'll have the dream and you'll be able to do that process. And you're like, well, how will I know? Like, when will the dream come? (laughs) It's a really sweet moment. So I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit about what you're trying to do in this chapter. And also, like, particularly this idea of, um, I mean, there's different variations of hermeneutics you're unpacking in this chapter, but I think dreams for me was particularly compelling. So I don't know if you want to talk about that.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. So chapter two, this is based on my, um, you know, basically the textual and hermeneutic stances of these two very small groups. They were the smallest and sort of most intimate orders I worked with. And order is even maybe a broad term because they're really based around these two sheikhs who don't know each other um, at all. Um, But I found they had similar um, sort of uh, approaches to poetry in particular. In that they were both very um, quick to diminish their own kind of authority as text as a textual authority, Um, so you know it's very typical to look at um, you know a a lot of poetry, not even whatever gets called mystical poetry, and be like that mean the text is endless there's um endless amounts of ways we can interpret this there's no right interpretation and you know you can get speaking of miniatures so you can get into people who be like well what is the you know this comma mean here and you can write a thesis on this so that is even outside of sort of sufi thought or you know sufi orders there you'll see people who are interested in the sort of endlessness of the text you know the way that you will always continue to find new meaning in you know one sentence um, and so what I found, and so that's that's not unusual, but what I found really interesting with these two sheikhs was that they both saw it as, um, it both resulted in them, their belief in this idea and saying about their limits as teachers, mm-hmm. uh, and they put it in different ways, they say the limitlessness of a text is a reflection or, or their inability to sort of be the uh, the best teacher, if you will, uh, not even the best teacher, sorry. I think, you know, I'm going to this. The text itself is so endless. And so my efforts as a teacher will always fall short. Um, and what was interesting was that one of the sheikhs, sheikh Nour, he, he saw this, it kind of made him fall into a little bit of melancholy. Uh, and he's like, oh, I'm always going to fail them. And this other sheikh, sheikh Alizade was like, no, see, that's fun. It's the end. It's like, almost like a game. And he was really joyous and uh, just a really lovely fellow. I mean, they both were so generous. Um, and then the dream bit was really, you know, was something I included, even though I, it's one of those, um uh moments where the sort of the process behind it I thought was interesting to yeah. include even though I don't get much into the in dream interpretation so that was so Sheikh Alizan is a really gregarious guy love to chat um you know answer any questions you have but you also do dream interpretation with his uh you know his followers um but that was something he didn't want to have written about right that was the only thing really he had any um hesitation about and then when I write about a sort of this uh what starts as sort of a a little bit of a negotiation but I also start to get nervous about myself we said well okay I'm not gonna we shouldn't write about other people's dream interpretations but you can write about your own and even at the time I was like well I don't know if that makes sense for me to put mine in but like let's go with this I want to see what he says but then I was like okay any dream and he's like no no it has to be the right dream and that's when I was like, I don't know. I was like, what's the right dream? I was like, I don't have enough training yeah. to identify yeah. this. Um, but even when we do, eventually I, you know, land on something I think is perhaps appropriate. Even when I do, he later calls me uh, or texts me. I can't remember. And is like, I actually don't think you should include even your own kind of a uh, dream interpretation in this book. Uh, yeah. And it was a really interesting just to show the potency of dreams, uh, opposed to textual materials, too. Mm. Uh, even though, you know, they, his group holds, you know, textual interpretation in such high regard, really see it as a way to, you know, transform the self, become closer to, you know, the type of knowledge that they're striving for. But still, you know, the dream was in another kind of category in and of itself. Yeah. Um, it was not for public consumption, even my own, even with consent. And, uh, uh, and his sort of nervousness about it was yeah. also really interesting, too. So I said, no problem. So I included the story about why it was not <laughs> included, yeah. but that, that it
1: happened. And I'm so glad you did, because I think it's just such a kind of profound insight into like the process mm. of what you're studying, too, right? And and again, going back to your point about how do we translate certain things, even when we don't have the capacity or the right or to translate, you know, and so you're giving right students or readers piecemeals of things knowing that you have to hold certain things back because from the language of ethnography you don't have consent to reveal but from the language of mysticism and sufism it's like you don't have consent to reveal because of other mystical reasons or esoteric reasons right
0: exactly exactly so you yeah. about you know make myself vulnerable to it could potentially be evil eye it could be um you know, or just overly exposure, it could be cheapening the dream. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they definitely held it in high regard. All of my interlocutors, for the most part, were very much interested me and dream interpretations
1: yeah i think it's i mean i know it was not the central focus of this chapter but i did think it was a fascinating dimension of the of the chapter as well um i think the next chapter goes on you have some kind of thematic concepts of like i think the next one really focuses on the body and one of the things this does is really starts getting into like ritual practices of zikr and fana and um like what those rituals and practices necessarily mean for some of the communities um and going into this process of like unknowing the self and and knowing the body in some ways. So, did you want to unpack a little bit about what's what's happening in this chapter and what your goals were in the communities that you were engaged with? You describe some spaces you were participating in and uh, Sufi Zikr's and you know, um that you were a part of as well.
0: Yeah. Sure. So and with the zik ritual, which is yeah, you noted know it is, the remembrance of God, um, and in these cases accompanied by music. Uh, not always, but in these groups in that chapter, um, they had musical accompaniment. I was really interested in trying to get lay people's understanding of the sort of goal of the, the zikr as articulated by the groups themselves, which is fanon, um, you know, dissolution of the self, sometimes called annihilation of the self. And I just was wondering, like, what does this mean for people? Uh, and it's not easy. You know, I'm supposed to do this for a living. And I'm like, oh, uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I also find it tricky. Um, so I really was curious about, you know, their experiences, what happens when they listen, what happens when, um, you know, they come out of it, does it have any purchase outside of their, you know, those moments when they have these, um, ceremonies, um, And so what I found there, and then also, uh, so what I found there was sort of two different groups, Uh, one whose understanding of the solution of the self was really tied to sort of the social realm, what we might call identity politics even, or, you know, just understandings of the self as constructed, you know, different categories. Um, And so when they would listen to music and go into the state of sect or go into a state of hall, um, Fendall for them was sort of removal from everyday problems, thinking about unemployment. Um, one of them was gender, uh, you know, problems, gender related sort of biases in the workplace. Um, someone else was geopolitics. That was really fascinating, too. So it was very much a removal um, from sort of uh, these kind of very worldly problems. And the other group were totally opposite. Um, and their language in articulating fana was much more sort of classically theological, if you want to call it that, like uh, NAFs, um, like, you know, removal of the NAFs like this. And um, it was interesting because for them, I think it was a more kind of radical uh, disillusion of subjectivity where it wasn't just, um, okay, a separation from, you know, the everyday in a way, but it was separation from this plane, you know, this sort of mortal plane, um, roll coil. Yeah, um, and into another kind of world uh, and closer to divinity. And it was a form of not just sort of replacing the world, but being elsewhere. And uh, from here, the body, it's always still really fascinating to me, the role of the body within Sufism, mm-hmm. or at least these strains of Sufism. Um, you know, some groups are saying it's all about going beyond the senses. You know, it's what your eye can't see. It's what you beyond hearing, uh, you know, the body is holding you down. But there's an interesting, almost sort of paradox for folks who are using things like music and listening practices, because in a way there is, with some certain strains, there are uh, real arguments for transcending the body. But it is through bodily practice that you're able to do this, uh, you know, become closer to God, achieve tohid, achieve sort of union with God. So it's through the body, and in particular, I focus on one of these sheikhs who had a real sort of um, aesthetic theory, I'm calling it, about listening, uh, about how the body, you have to listen in a way to get into a state of altered consciousness, but in particular, listen, it makes you aware of your own heartbeat, and it makes you aware of things that are happening all the time around you, um, but you're just not capable of tapping into um sort of the miraculous so when you listen to music you know you feel the beat you feel the percussion and it uh, mimics the body um and so in that way uh you're able to have a sort of a a strange sort of bodily knowledge uh which leads to an awareness of everything that's kind of going on uh all around us all times that we're you know often too ignorant to note
1: yeah, I'm just, I was looking for a quote in the book, but um, I may not be able to find it so quickly. But yeah, I think this this chapter, and I think even the contextualization, oh, um, from Abu Nassar Suraj, true zikr is that which you forget your zikr, right? And so the idea right. is like, yeah. and so it kind of reminds me of the comments you're making about how do you both utilize a body, but also negate the body at the same time? when
0: Exactly, is- exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think this yeah. chapter does like a fabulous job of like really kind of complicating that and like embedding it both in kind of classical traditions. But I think more importantly, in terms of how your interlocutors are really like practically really grappling with how do you like do that, right? <laughs> so
0: yeah, yeah. Because they believe it, like this is an there's an objective, you know, right. to strive for to achieve. Right. And very few Sometimes I'd bring people, uh, and this group was very open, you know. So it was you do not have to be like a member or anything. Some people would bring friends, and they'd be like, "Yeah, I get um, you know, um, aromish. Like I get some calmness. I feel better after this." But I found folks who attended regularly had were really actually thinking more about um, you know, the sort of transformative elements of what's happening to them mm-hmm. there yeah it was a fabulous chapter
1: I think that's great um the next chapter I would say was the one that has stuck with me the most um I think because partly yeah it's just such a again beautiful most most of your chapters begin with this intent like you know vignettes I think the vignette that you start off this chapter with is quite intense for obvious political reasons um and I love really kind of the focus here on memory and I think um I think willful amnesia is kind of this conceptual idea that you're really grappling with this in just chapter. And like, what I was really struck by is how that amnesia is both um, a social political necessity of survival in the context of Iran, because of what does happen to the sacred space that we hopefully can talk Mm -hmm. us through. But also, what does that mean in the context of Sufi being of like, you know, what, what, Mm. what is memory in Sufism? And what is, um, what are memories that we're trying to reclaim? So and so I'm really just was really struck by the multiple dimensions in which you're processing kind of unknowing memory, both for political reasons and surviving a context where maybe state politics are a little bit complicated, and, you know, destroying a particular space, a sacred space. But then the other is like, how do we you know, complement that with the fact that you have a mystical view of the world or you know, esoteric view of the world or Sufi view of the world. And that is also attached to memory and maybe returning to a memory. And so I wonder if you could talk us through kind of this chapter, which I think is just a fabulous one. Yeah. Well,
0: thank you. No, this was um also tricky in one of the earlier kind of moments, early very happened pretty early in my field work. Mm. Um so this traces, you know, this chapter looks at the destruction of a um of a Swifitechie, which is sort of like a you know, meeting place, Honaga, which is around around a grave. Um, it was done ostensibly as part of a beautification of a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um uh, although, and so, uh, and this is a part where I, I you know, I, I maybe, I wish I could have had more information from, you know, authorities and things, but kind of didn't go down that path. Um, but, uh, so there is a bit about that. The reason, the official reason given was this, this it was destroyed, not because of uh, people were using it and things, but because it was part of a revitalization of this kind of necropolis site that uh, it's a part of. And what I was looking at was uh, it was revealed to me in kind of bits and pieces. I wasn't in Iran when the site was destroyed, but I had, um, you know, mm-hmm. friends, interlocutors who were part of it. And it was very painful. Um, and uh, but when I started doing more intensive field work about it later on, uh, I got very different responses from people about how they were remembering the site. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, mostly the ones who I know the closest, were very open and described it. But other people... Um, didn't want to, not only didn't want to talk about it, but answered in a very unusual way and that they were kind of denying that it happened at all. Um, And so, you know, and I get into sort of different levels of how people are kind of, I I don't like the term denial because I think it's much more intentional than that. Um, And this is where, uh, to sort of summarize, there was a kind of decision and I do think it was an intentional decision made to kind of collectively forget about the site, Um, not because it shouldn't be disremembered, but because they saying, well, that's not, what's important uh, about, the site isn't important. Um, And so rather than, and I think about this as amnesia rather than forgetting, because forgetting has a sort of casual, you know, slips your mind. Amnesia indicates to me an awareness that you don't know something, And so, you know, someone, you know, in the movies, they wake up, they have amnesia. They know there's like a blank slate uh, where memory should be. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to kind of uh, instill this? That's the willful part of amnesia that this group who is trying to trying to actively forget. So it is, I found, I think it was an active kind of movement. Um, And the idea was that, well, the material space kind of wasn't necessary, um at all. And um, but I do also try to bit to notions of remembrance and forgetting to uh where the moments of uh to have the most powerful moment of remembrance often of God is to have a moment of uh like a silent like a split second moment of forgetting so you can have that heightened moment of recollection that happens. Um and this I think also kind of speaks to the nature of how they're you know how they're con- conceiving of of this, um, how they're conceptualizing memory, which is, this is what I call the unknowing of memory. Um, And they're applying, you know, questioning a memory um, in order to, you know, remember to forget it, essentially. And I thought about, you know, I, I put it in this way, I was really interested in this as sort of a tactic of sort of to get into this idea of sort of, you know, survival, how they're positioning themselves, because it changed their tactics towards, how to deal with the site changed pretty drastically before and after um, the destruction. So before, you know, there was petitions, they were keeping watch, it was trying to find legal means. It was a very much an actively engaged, uh, you know, with the municipality, with the, uh, the city. Um, but after it was a very different kind of form of engagement where it wasn't like, you know, we're gonna bring it. There was some initially, there was, you know, speaking to some reporters and things. Uh, but then after it was a very different kind of mode of discussion um and so I think there has to be some intentionality behind that uh and I didn't want to call it resistance because I think that would be overreading the situation and also it's that was sort of playing the game by the terms of the authorities by the municipality um where this is you know changing the games by saying well actually we don't even need the site um was sort of shifting it to more their terms and emphasizing what's important for um you know the group themselves or their own sort of mystical epistemologies mm-hmm. instead
1: yeah, it was just such a fascinating chapter, and I think the way that you brought these kind of different dimensions of, again, amnesia, remembering, forgetting across different contexts is just really provocative and, like, really left me thinking about, like, as much as the p- political context, but also much as the, the metaphysical context, right, and I think this is the one chapter that that really came out for me, right, the social-political context of Iran and state politics, and whatever they are, but also the negotiation of that and, and how as
0: one well it's such a strong move i think on their part even though they themselves it's it's interesting because i'm reading it and they are like it's weird to sort of right. discuss with them or not discuss with them yeah. um but so much of iran is either i mean now it's even changed a bit more but it's out you're against state it's sort of you're pro the state this is like can we cultivate an irrelevance right. of it uh yeah. which is of course has its own sets of politics um but at least it's something that it's it looks it seems like that's something they're working towards.
1: Right. Which is interesting in light of some, I think, some of the earlier discussions in the book. I think maybe in chapter one, when where the critique of Sufism or some Sufi groups or Sufi adjacent groups has been a particular passive approach to kind of state politics, right? And I think here right. in instance you see how. You, you can't really reduce it to passive. There is something, as you were saying, really deeply intentional about the moves that they're making, but the the outcomes may not be as like active and tangible as, as much as like it's, I don't know if you call it esoteric work or, work or spiritual work internally that they're doing to mm-hmm. kind of negotiate this kind of difficult situation of like destruct, destroying a sacred space, right? And that's like really tricky. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. But
0: the, yeah, it's one are they prioritizing. Right. Um. Those moments, you know, and there's lots of things that i I wish I had sort of more information too about why they're doing it in particular case, but I didn't. But I still think it's it's really interesting to the move they're kind of making there.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I agree, and I I think it's like just great to think about it around the context of the umbrella of memory. I think it's just really productive. Um, the last chapter I think was really cheeky and playful, which I really appreciated oh, yeah. in contrast to the chapter preceding it. <laughs> um so there was just kind of a like a shift which is great I think it's good yeah. for the reader to have that um I just have this image of you wandering the neighborhood looking listening <laughs> to music to go to a meeting which is really how yeah. you start the chapter right it's just um yeah I don't know if you want to say more to the listeners but that's <laughs> that was the process of you trying to find this particular Sufi gathering you were going to which is listening to music in the neighborhood
0: yeah, so this was, as you said, it's, I, I think it's the most playful because a group are, it's a group of young people, essentially, and they start, Um, and there was a whole debate, actually, whether it's a game or not a game. Right. Uh, and I think they decided, okay, it's a type of game, ultimately, where they uh, had a really unique method of convening. um, And so instead of just saying, like, okay, let's meet in so-and-so's house, here's the address... Like, okay, we're uh, we're gonna meet at so-and-so's house. But if they didn't know, and then not everybody knew each other's um, you know, addresses, they're like, go to this intersection. Yeah. Uh, and then you will we'll play some music or broadcast some music from either like a courtyard or a window. Um, and then you just have to follow the music to figure out which building. Um, and yeah, they thought it was really fun and kind of funny. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and there was always like it, you know there was a lot of playfulness with it and then also and sometimes like the I think it's even in the book the names are rubbed off on like the buildings things, you know yeah. when you need to buzz in and they're like okay hello we're here like buzz me in or sometimes it'd yeah. so be like they'd be like come on now I'm just running late it's like okay uh yeah. do this and other times some people would really get into it and they're like no no I'm close like is it here and yeah. you know, there's jokes like I'm gonna harass the neighbors like buzzing random sure. things so it was playful but the idea there was um behind this kind of method of convening was that uh, they were engaging with concepts of wandering, you know, suluk, um, which their sort of Sufi forebears uh, had done and, you know, actual physical wandering has not been a prominent practice within Iran for, you know, the 20th century. I mean, you still find the, the, the shrines and things, They're still like the, you know, um, you know, a more marginal figures, holy like faqir types who are around, uh, but they're really the exception to the norm. And certainly these groups are not, you know, doing that. Uh, but it was a way of sort of incorporating that into their everyday lives. Um, and I should also note this was also after they started doing these meetings, just these young people. There are no sort of sheikhs, there's no authorities involved. It was all just, you know, people in their 20s, I think you know, some teenagers, maybe people in their early 30s doing it after you know some more official meetings had closed and so uh they're like well let's do this and so there's this question of intentional listening and you know they discuss is it different from other forms of listening other times of wandering around that they might do um and so it's a you know how they kind of create their own sort of sufi soundscape sufi landscape uh in the in the world um and i call it a listen for soundscape because it's also kind of a secret like if you just hear someone playing music uh it's not typical in a neighborhood but it's not something to give you really any pause um it's not dissimilar to like a um uh you know an american suburb someone's playing music you're like, you notice it it's unusual and most neighborhoods and uh residential neighborhoods with the exception of Tehran, are pretty quiet it's not even like an upper class thing necessarily most of these folks are middle class um some upper middle class um and so there's just sort of this temporary soundscape I say that kind of pops up uh that only the people who are members of can recognize as such so I think about if you can have these sort of alternative map of the city where these little Sufi spots kind of pop up um And again, just the creativeness, the playfulness here with which these, uh, in these case, young folks are kind of thinking about these, um, you know, often very complex uh, theories uh, was uh, a lot of fun to talk with them about
1: yeah no it sounded like a fun, i mean they all sounded wonderful in their own ways but this particular group seemed particularly fun and cheeky and and I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. again he used it really to interrogate this notion of uh, like sama and deep listening and intentional listening so it wasn't even just that they were doing it for the sake of being like perhaps hipster or whatever they were imagining but they were actually doing it for like intentional reasons of like you know, these were the idea of wandering and listening to sound, I think, is just like a really good pedagogical method of inviting people into a Sufi space to read poetry or something. Yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly, you know, most of those poetry groups, but also I just, I, I, I like the idea, and I kind of tease them of being sort of revivalist, and usually when we think of like revivalists, it's a more sort of um you know conservatively oriented alafi kind of move but here it's like let's go back to the old, old methods but in a very much more playful kind of way is
1: uh I, yeah. I love that the old methods of wandering dervisha is like i think that's quite hilarious
0: right. yeah
1: it's cute yeah. now and I think it was like a wonderful way to really kind of end the book off too, in terms of the different dimensions and the waves that you took us and thinking about space and urban geography and soundscapes as layered on top of it as a way of mapping. I think it was really, really great as well. In your postscript, I was kind of curious that you talk get us into the space of improvised music and like improvisation mm-hmm. a little bit. So I wonder, um, I was curious about where that was coming from in terms of in light of the broader project and really why you wanted the reader to be left off on that final note. I don't know if you wanted to share a little bit well,
0: about that. Sure, yeah. So it came out of me thinking with the music that the group was playing mm-hmm. at the end. Often that music is improvised, mm-hmm. um you know, the recordings of it. Uh, but a lot of um Iranian music is the classical music is through improvisation. Um, and what I wanted, I wanted to end on that note, because just like unknowing is always generative and without finality, um, improvisation too, even the beginning is unpredictable, the end is unpredictable, you know, you just kind of have to decide to end it at some point, you know, if you're operating, I think of it like a musical performance, essentially, you know, how does it end, uh, improvisers, and I find this so interesting, they just have to work together and eventually someone's going to wrap up and um, Uh, And so partially thinking about that, um, but also um, I found improvisation really um, helpful for thinking about how people operate often just through the world, because when musicians are improvising, they play off one another. Um, I guess there's solo improvisations, but you know, that takes another level of sort of fortitude. So, but you're always responding in sort of real time to things that are happening around you, to things that you are trying to, that you can't really predict. And the way that you're responding, however, is not out of the ether, you know, you are responding based on a certain form of training you've had, a certain form of, of, you know, self you've cultivated or not cultivated or allowed yourself to operate. And when people uh, say, when they write about, you know, talking about the perform of you can't be totally conscious of what you're doing. Even you're going to a more sort of automatic thinking, in, uh, intuitive thinking. And a lot of that reminds me of what I would talk to with my interlocutors when they're saying, this is the type of thinking we want to get to. Uh, this thinking, which is uh, not about, you know, fully understanding something and like checking a box and feeling confident about it and moving on, but rather thinking where you just kind of are chasing after it that you don't have fully control about these thoughts that even you're having you know, you're pulling them from somewhere. Um, and so with improvisation, I was a sort of use this slightly metaphorically to think about how these Sufis are also moving through their way throughout the world. Um, kind of having to improvise literally about what is kind of being thrown at them, what it's hard to be. It's hard to uh, predict what's coming and it's hard to, um, you know, predict what you're going to do even, Um, um, but it's always generative and it, uh, and it's always going to be, um, based on a certain knowledge that, uh, we're always having to move forward. I love that. That's even, without, even without the path laid out in front of us in a way. Yeah. yeah
1: that makes that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, I know we covered a lot of material in a short amount of time, and I'm sure we missed a lot of things we weren't able to get to, but is there anything perhaps mm-hmm. that you wanted to mention that we didn't come out in our conversation that you'd want our listeners to know? Or
0: no, I I think that's it. I think we were able to cover a lot, a lot. And yeah. thank you so much for your super thoughtful questions. Yeah, no, of- I know I it's absolutely my pleasure. It's just, again,
1: I can't, um, it, yeah, stress enough that it's a fantastic book and I there's parts of it that I need to go back and sit with. And I definitely, as I mentioned, because um, I have similar interests in some of this stuff, I definitely will be citing a lot of this material likewise. in my work. Yeah, so it's fabulous.
0: Um, likewise, likewise, it's yours too. Thank you. Um,
1: Is there stuff that you're working on? I mean, obviously this was a huge project and hopefully you're resting and celebrating this fabulous book because it's just recently, I think, come out. And so hopefully lots of things are happening around it. Um, But are there other ideas or projects that are percolating slowly in the background for you at the moment?
0: Yeah, so definitely keyword on slowly there. But it's been fun to think about other projects too. Um, I have one... uh, which is one that is a smaller project that is sort of Sufi-related um, uh, more tangentially, but it's sort of a visual culture uh, within Iran, in particular, the proliferation of, of poetry on uh, as a decorative kind of motif. Um, in particular, you know, you see uh, verses from Hofez, you know, the canon on everything from billboards to tchotchkes to hipster cafes, And I'm curious about how it is, um, you know, how it sort of that production kind of complicates the notions of high art and low art, Uh, because on the one hand, it's revered as, you know, poetry is the high art, Iran, etc. But then it's also mass produced uh, everywhere. Um, So sort of thinking about that, that's a smaller project. Um, A bigger project I'm working on I'm in the early days is actually um, looking to intellectual histories of Afghanistan. Um, so this is it's, it's, this is in sort of a different rain vein. Um, but I'm looking at writings um, from intellectuals and activists and jihadi uh, periodicals from the 80s and the 90s, uh, particularly about their ideas of Islamic governance. Um, and some of the ideas are very different from, you know the Islamic gov- governance that came to pass. Um, And so I'd also like to do, hopefully, you know, inshallah, some oral histories of some of those folks who are involved. And it's just this moment of Afghanistan where, you know, the monarchy is gone, you know, the Soviets are on their, hopefully on their way out, the folks are thinking. And so now is really the chance we have for a representative government uh, that we wanted to have all these years. Um, Unfortunately, that doesn't come to pass. But I think you know, the, again, the complexity, the ideas, and particularly the role of poetry uh, is really fascinating to me. Um, uh, you know, there's all these, the, for example, there's one, a lot of these periodicals, these jihadi periodicals are, have a lot of poetry in them. Um, and one in one particular, there's a periodical, it's called Jihad, and it has a column called Jihad. But what's being published is all poems under it. uh and so how they're thinking of jihad is through things like um, nationalism, nature, the body. Um, and so it's much, um, it's not even particularly, you know, using classical sort of theological language in any way, um, but just the proliferation of poetry, there's a massive outpouring of poetry this time, especially by folks um, in Peshawar who are in exile Um, And there's reports of even folks who, you know, didn't know how to write, they would write poetry, have it recorded and have it written down by like a scribe. Um, So looking at some of the works that are published there, it's very nascent um, day, early days of that, but, um, but that's what I'm working on. Yeah, I mean, that sounds
1: so fascinating. I'm already like, tell me more. But yeah, that's amazing. Well, I look forward to all your future scholarship. And again, many congratulations on this beautiful book. And I, I wish you all the best. And thanks for connecting with us on the podcast.
0: Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, it was an honor. And that was my conversation
1: with Seema Golestani about her book, Unknowing and the Everyday Sufism and knowledge in Iran. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll join us again next time for another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you so much and take care.